This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. While driving around the district the other day, I noticed the small murmurs and murders of birds diligently combing the alfalfa and wheat fields. This is a sure signal of their good work, eating their way through the insects that will become more active this time of year. Scouting of the wheat fields is important this time of year, as while the wheat is growing quickly, it is still young enough that heavy insect populations could be problematic. Within the wheat fields, we need to be looking for a few specific insects this time of year, including the bird cherry odaphid and some of the more cold-tolerant mites, and what these birds are after, the armyworms. The bird cherry odaphid gets started early in the spring, as they don't mind the colder temperatures like the other aphids. For the most part, if you find an aphid this time of year, it's likely one of this species. Later when it gets warmer, the green bug aphid will start to be more of a problem. Even though they are currently present in the fields, the cherry oat aphid is unlikely to be in high enough population to be an issue until we get closer to wheat jointing. This aphid, like other aphids, are usually well controlled by beneficials. Populations, however, can explode in numbers after a pesticide application meant for other insects that kills the beneficials and allows this fast reproducing pest to take off. This is another reason to only spray pesticides when needed, rather than as a preventative, cheap application when applying something else. The main focus of this week's report, though, will be on the worms, namely the army cutworm and the army worm. Army cutworms feed in both wheat and alfalfa fields nearly all winter long, when temperatures are above 45 degrees. This time of year, they are starting to get to a good size and can leave wheat looking like it was grazed by cattle in areas throughout the field. This worm is darker brown with faint linear stripes and only feeds on the leaves of plants rather than the roots like some other worms. Later when summer gets closer, this worm will pupate into the miller moth and fly back to the Rocky Mountains in May to overwinter. We generally have less of the army cutworm here than farther west for this reason. The treatment threshold depends on how strong the wheat stand is. The average wheat stand threshold begins at above 4 to 5 worms per square foot. Later in April, the wheat will be able to handle larger populations, but also the worms will be on their last instar, while they will consume much more than the previous instars. The army worm looks a little bit like the army cutworm, but the two are actually quite different. Army worms won't be seen till later in late April and early May. In April, the adult moth will start to fly in from the south, where they overwinter and start to lay eggs in corn, wheat, sorghum, and pastures. The armyworm larvae grows fast through its five instars and has a second generation in Kansas before flying back to the southern states. The first generation is problematic for corn, but the second generation can be in much greater numbers and a problem in fall pastures and wheat. This is why the insect will likely be covered again in the fall. This worm is more of a problem here than the army cutworm because we are more easily within their migration pattern and they feed on a number of different crops. A full-grown armyworm is dark green with much brighter linear stripes than the cutworm. Generally though, it is unlikely to see the armyworm this early in the spring, just the adult, dusty light brown colored moths. However, this time of year is important to control grasses in the no-till fields that will be planted to corn if the soil ever dries out. If you need any help identifying a pest or need recommendations, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent from the Wildcat Extension District. 
Producers are thinking about pasture management year-round, but spring is like a fresh start of when something can actually be done for pest control and grazing management. Now is a good time to get plans going for weed management, plant disease management, as well as prepare for insect damage. Plants can get diseases that affect their growth and nutritional quality, but some toxins can even affect animal performance. Scout for insect damage in alfalfa and other legumes. Weevil infestations can kill stands if not treated on time. Aphids may weaken stands considerably, specifically when additional stresses occur, like flooding. To combat pests like weeds, the first step is sometimes the hardest, identification of the problem. Proper ID is paramount to good and cost-effective control. For example, henbit is a winter weed problem. You wouldn't want to try to control it in July. That'd be a waste of money and time. Most weeds are like that. You'll want to apply treatment to dormant Bermuda grass to keep pastures clean of broadleaf weeds throughout this time. Keep in mind that Bermuda grass should not be mowed or grazed for 60 days after a glyphosate application after greenup. So, time herbicide applications accordingly. In native pastures, prescribed burns are recommended. Speaking of prescribed burns, Recall that there really is a difference in just throwing out a match and prescribing a fire for a particular area. A set time and duration is called for in the highest effectiveness, and safety measures are put into place to ensure safety. Safety measures like fire breaks, fully functional fire crews with assignments, and a written plan for the area to be burned are all parts of a well-thought-out prescribed burn event, not to mention an extra safety net. This is also a great time of year to put nutrient plans into play. Anytime grass comes off of a pasture, either in an animal's belly or in the form of hay, nutrients are removed and it's imperative that they are replaced at the appropriate level to ensure a healthy stand of desirable forage. Start with a soil test. You can borrow a soil probe from any of the four Wildcat District Extension offices and your price per sample is only 10 bucks. This $10 will get you an analysis of the nutrients that are present in your soil and a recommended rate for your choice of fertilizer to bring the soil back to optimum production. Not all pastures need to be fertilized, but all pastures do need to be tested for deficiencies and then nutrients applied if any are lacking. Well cared for and long-standing native grasses tend to not need additional soil amendments, but introduced forages that are not native will need the extra boosts. For more information on pasture management, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Voles are small mammals that live throughout Kansas. Sometimes they are referred to as meadow mice. Voles are compact rodents with short tails about an inch long, stocky bodies, big heads, and short legs. Their eyes are small and ears are partially hidden. They are usually brown or gray, but coloration can vary widely. Three species of voles can be found throughout the state, 
Woodland vole, meadow vole, and prairie voles are all found in Kansas. Voles are small, weighing 1 to 2 ounces when fully grown. Overall body length varies from 3 to 5.5 inches for the woodland vole to about 4.5 to 7 inches for meadow and prairie voles. Voles play an important role in the food chain. They provide a major part of the diet for many predators, including coyotes, hawks, owls, foxes, and snakes. The mortality rate for voles is high. Life expectancy in the wild often does not exceed two months, and few live longer than 16 months. However, voles are prolific animals. The breeding season for all voles encompasses most of the year. Although peaks occur in the spring and fall, meadow and prairie voles normally have 5 to 10 litters per year, with an average litter size of 3 to 5 young. Woodland voles are not as prolific, averaging 1 to 6 litters a year and a litter size of 2 to 4 young. Large population fluctuations are characteristic of voles. Population peaks occur about every three to four years. These are not regular cycles and do not usually involve spectacular population explosions. Occasionally, populations swell for about a year before declining. Several factors contribute to the potential for dramatic population growth. Voles do not hibernate but remain active throughout the year. Females become reproductively active at a young age of 35 to 40 days. Voles can give birth to a litter of 3 to 6 young every 21 days after the young of the first litter are weaned. If the habitat provides protection from predators and high protein food sources exist, populations can reach devastating levels in a short time. Vegetation higher than 6 inches, snow cover, brush piles, leaves, and low-hanging limbs all provide excellent habitat protection. If there is good cover and high-quality food available during the population growth period, predators cannot keep up and economic damage can occur. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Edible landscaping is the act of designing residential landscapes to include food-producing plants. When people use edible landscaping, 90% of the time, the plant is there to serve an aesthetic function, with any harvests coming as a nice bonus. This is preferred for several reasons, but with the right plant selection, you can cut down on potential food costs and work more fresh food into your diet, all from the comfort of your own home. Edible landscaping plants are distinct from vegetable garden plants in the amount of maintenance they will need during the growing season and how long they will remain in your garden. The philosophy of edible landscaping is getting the most benefit for the least effort, and because of this, food plants are worked into the landscape in upward and outward layers. The plants closest to your house will be the plants that take the most time to maintain and harvest. These will typically be berry-producing shrubs like aronia, currant, or gooseberry. As you move farther away from your house, the landscape should transition to plants that are easier to maintain and harvest, like the tree fruits. Putting harder-to-maintain plants farther from your house increases the work you will need to put into your landscape and the likelihood that your plants will not get the maintenance they need to produce the food you're hoping for. 
in the vertical space, the tallest plants should be in the center of an installation, with plant height decreasing as you move outward. This permaculture technique is especially useful if you can incorporate shorter, shade-loving plants like leaf vegetables. Do not sink too many resources into overhauling your landscape to be all food-producing plants. Many people interested in edible landscaping try growing more plants than they have the time to maintain and harvest, which can lead to a feeling of wasting money on your landscape or wasting food. Instead, opt for a few superstar producers peppered into your landscape, and grow and scale from there as you gain experience with your interest. One of the edible landscaping superstars to incorporate into your landscape is Aronia. Aronia shrubs are native, tolerate nearly every environmental condition, and are prolific producers of blackberries that ripen in the late fall or early winter. These berries are generally not targeted by birds, making them a safe choice for a hassle-free crop. Just be sure to let the berries fully ripen and experience a frost or two. Like persimmons, they need cold snaps to sweeten up. Other edible landscaping superstars include walnut, serviceberry, golden currant, and sandhill plum, all of which are plants native to North America. Choosing native plants for the landscape increases the likelihood of their survival and means less maintenance from you. Sometimes, plants that you don't want can still be edible. For example, dandelions can be considered superfoods and are found in almost every lawn in North America. Learning about the plants in your own backyard will surprise you with just how many of those plants you can eat. However, new foods can still cause problems in your body. With all new foods that you're trying for the first time, whether desired or not, eat them in small amounts to confirm that you have no allergic reactions and to allow your body to acclimate to this new food source. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.